Hey friends, we have been a little MIA on the podcast, but we made sure that we got back just in time for our summer story series. We know how much you love those. Our first guest is an absolute force for good in the world. Andrea Hines is a socialist feminist from Edmonton, Alberta, who writes and speaks about commercialized sex. After spending seven years in the licensed and regulated adult industry, she is now a sex trade abolitionist and equality model proponent. Andrea shares her journey and insights with students, professionals, and the general public. She is married with three young children, and she took the time to sit down and tell us her story while dispelling myths about sex work in a beautifully vulnerable way. Before we get started, as with all of our stories, some of the content may be triggering to our listeners. So grab a friend or a mentor or a trusted adult and don't listen alone. We want all of our conversations to be helpful and not harmful, so listen with discretion. Now, without further ado, here is my conversation with my new friend, Andrea Hines. Okay. Well, Andrea, welcome to the Wild and Free podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'm like, honestly, ridiculously excited about this. Um, You are a friend of Glendine's and some of our um, listeners would have remembered her from some of our previous episodes right at the very very beginning and anyone who is a friend of Glendine's is a friend of mine so basically we are we have talked for five minutes ever like that's <laughs> that's it and a few emails so I'm really excited to get to know you and like more of your story at the exact same time as our listeners today and you're like in the middle of and have done and are doing some pretty crazy cool exciting things like a docuseries and I think you said you co-authored a book and I'm just really grateful that you're taking the time to do this. I know you have a lot going on. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, lately I do. And I'm so grateful too, because like I was saying earlier, before we jumped on here, I think we've been talking about a, a year to coordinate our schedules and make this happen. And likewise, yeah. any friend of Glendine's is a friend of mine too. So I'm just so happy to be invited and to be here with you in this time. Yeah, of course. So let's just start right in and you can introduce yourself. I mean, I guess to me also and to all of our listeners and just tell us a little bit. Yeah, a little bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I'm a 39 year old woman who lives in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and I'm a mother of three children. I have a son who's eight, a son who's six and a daughter who's four. Wow. um, yeah, happily married and uh, trying to complete a degree in governance, law, and management. And wow. I have a, yeah, a diploma in correctional services where uh, my focus was on violence against women and um, also on sex offenders. So that's kind of my areas of interest. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I really just uh, am quite passionate about commercial sexual exploitation, given that I spent seven years in the industry from 2006 until 2013, so ages 22 to 29. And uh, so been out of that now for 10 years and been doing quite a bit of activism in that area and uh, making that my focus. So this is part of it and uh speaking as often as i can to people who are in the topic and want to learn more and in doing so i always learn more as well so uh it's just a really really good experience for me most times to just be in the arena and Mm -hmm. uh collaborate with so many amazing people on this issue 
Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I just was thinking of this while you were talking is so the things that you have studied and are studying now, has that always been kind of something that you were super interested in? Or did that kind of was that born out of part of your story and your lived experience of being in some of these situations, which we will get into in a minute? You know, it's it's weird, because I think that there was always little uh, sprinklings of it mm-hmm. as part of my interest, but not really at the forefront. Mm-hmm. So as a child, I, and still to this day, I was very um, passionate about sport mm-hmm. and I've uh, spent most of my childhood and, and my young adulthood uh, competing in sport, particularly martial arts. I have a black belt in Renchkon karate, a traditional Japanese style karate. Jeez, that's and- awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> You're like cool levels, just like... <laughs> And even higher. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, um, and then and then running too. Running has always been a sport that I'm super passionate about and long distance running. So last year I finally got around to doing my first marathon ever. But <gasps> Okay, how was that? Sorry. Grueling, but it's weird because even now I'm looking forward to planning to try to do an ultra marathon, but I have to get through a few things first. But <laughs> I, I had like the equal and opposite reaction where I did, I ran a half marathon and everyone's like, now are you going to do a full marathon? I was like, no, now I never have to run that <laughs> far ever again. I'm like, I just want to run for fun now. I had no desire to run further or more. So, but that's, most people, once they do one, they want to do more. And I'm yeah. not that person. I still love to run, but just only as far as I want. Like, not that far. The training involved. I always say to people when they ask about a marathon, like, the training is so much harder than the actual run itself. When you get out there, you're just on autopilot. But getting to that point is is horrendous. But, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, so whenever I was a kid, I, I was really into sport. And so I always actually intended to stay uh, career-wise in that area and I wanted to become uh, a kinesiologist or do some type of sports medicine and that was kind of the road I was traveling on but as a kid I definitely had some uh, feminist mindset I was always very um, competitive when it came to uh, you know competing with boys and stuff yeah. as well being like I can keep up I can do it it doesn't matter that I'm just a girl you know kind of vibe. So, yeah uh, so- always I think of the mindset of equality for females and uh saw that but um that actually led me to one of the jobs that I had right before I entered the sex industry and that was um working at a women's prison here the Edmonton Institution for Women and I was a, a recreation officer so basically a personal fitness trainer that would go on to the the units and train women who are incarcerated and try to develop healthy habits within their their lives and such. So mm-hmm. while I was there, that was really, um, I was 19 at the time of working there. And uh, that was really where I kind of saw a lot of the um, issues that, that face us now as women. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the violence and a lot of the exploitation, a lot of the harm that women were being subjected to and how it led them to being... Um, in conflict with the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of what I think was the major uh, seed planter for me. But then, of course, after that, my life kind of went sideways. Um, it, it was probably only about, I want to say about a year or so, maybe a year and a half or so into being in the commercial sex trade, where then I started going to college and I took a correctional mm-hmm. services diploma. Mm-hmm. So it, it wove together a little bit where there was little things that kind of nudged me along there but I wouldn't say that it was uh, a very dominant part of my 
my um, outlook or mindset or anything until later, probably more so, you know, at the end of my time in the industry. Right. Yeah. So walk us through that. So you're, you're working in the correctional facility and you're, you know, and you're 19. And then what takes Andrea into um, the world of, of prostitution from there? Uh, um, well, I think it kind of goes back even further than that. Um, because it's really interesting. People always sort of say like, what, what was the thing that got you into the industry? And I think they're usually expecting just like one catalyst. And uh, for so many women, I've really learned that it's a multitude of mm-hmm. catalysts that lead them there, that lead us there. Mm-hmm. And so my biggest one that I always go back to is the the cultural normative effect of, you know, sex work is work. And mm-hmm. always having that being very uh, shoved down our throats as even kids. And mm-hmm. um, just that hyper-sexualized culture of like, hey, this is what, you know, creates value in women. Mm. This is how women will succeed in life and be admired and respected and quote unquote successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was always, again, one of those seeds that was in the back of my mind. Mm. And um, I was subjected to a, a little bit of abuse at a daycare whenever I was a child, uh, mm-hmm. both by a young boy who would repeatedly expose his penis to me during nap time. As well as, yeah, as well as a woman who um, was physically abusive to me as an employee there. So I think that those things kind of were the early onset into my life of um, developing kind of like that unnerved feeling and low self-esteem, maybe low self-worth, uncertainty, just not that, you know, power, carrying that powerful woman kind of energy into my later years. So that whole thing kind of then led me into, you know, not having those uh, characteristics and in turn dating men who were not good for me and uh, men that I kind of felt like I had to prove myself to, like, I'm good enough to be with you. I'm, I've got self-worth. Choose me, you know, needing them to affirm that in me. Yeah. And uh, so from, yeah, 16 to 19, I dated a a horrible guy who was extremely abusive. He ended up becoming a a drug dealer selling crack cocaine, Um, physically abusive, emotionally, mentally abusive. Um, Right now, currently, he's sitting in jail awaiting trial for murdering an Indigenous woman here in Canada. Oh, wow. Uh, And then it was just one guy after another like that where I, I was just so... Um, broken in some kind of way that I just kept on thinking that these people were the answer to me, you know, not having that, that value. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's kind of, it's one of those things where we, I think I've heard other people say this. I'm like, this is, I think of this every single time that I hear a story like this or talk to someone who, you know, where you end up in these, you know, similar situations over and over again. And it's, and we actually all do it just in different ways but we like we accept the kind of love that we think we deserve Mm -hmm. so you know you have all these little things that happen like you said over time it's never one thing it's all these little little messages and little things that creep up that either like instill fear or make us second guess ourselves or be like well maybe I deserve maybe I maybe this is just how women are treated like maybe I'm just I'm not being good enough I should have done something different it's my fault we live that out in a way where we're like well they pay attention to me so good enough Absolutely. It feels something in there for like a moment, even if it's not in a healthy way. It's like when you're so hungry, you'll eat anything. It's like that. 
drinking the poison when you're thirsty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. It was so true. And um, now I can recognize that, you know, but when you're kind of in the storm, mm-hmm. like you said, it's just done unconsciously. Yeah. And so it was this cycle that I just kept repeating. And, you know, oftentimes in our victim blaming society, people will look at, you know, these situations and say, well, you chose those people, you know, you wanted to date them, you, yes, you know, so it, it did have that effect where, you know, I contributed to that by quote unquote choosing these people. But, you know, we just don't really look at a lot of the bigger picture to these things and understand how that influences our decisions. And it's, it's very yeah. sad. And if you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, like, I don't know, you get into some situations where I just think, where was the choice in this? Where did this person actually feel like they had any other choice? Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. How do you even know how to choose something else? What What are your options? You, there's a lot of reasons you can choose things or not choose things. And you ask that person the same thing if they would choose the same thing when they're, you know, five years later or five years into their healing journey or whatever, they would never choose that same thing. And I, I did choose that guy and, and that was the problem, you know, but once you're in those abusive relationships, then you, it doesn't stay a choice. Then you are so beaten down and so uh, battered emotionally and mentally that, you know, you already felt bad enough to pick that person to begin mm-hmm. with. But now you feel even worse about yourself with how they've treated you that you don't think that you're worthy of anybody else or anybody better. So then you start being like, well, this is the best I can do. And mm-hmm. so then you're trying to appease that person and compromising yourself even further. And yeah. so you, at, at 16, I, you know, made a poor decision, but at 19, it, it really was a struggle to leave that guy. Yeah. And, and it led to the point of me packing up my stuff in the middle of the night, basically, and only telling my parents and, you know, one or two close, close, close friends that I was leaving town and just basically mm-hmm. abandoning, you know, my entire life to get away from that guy. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it just was a really bad situation. And I wish people could have more empathy for young yeah. women and how we're really, you know, as studies show, like we lose so much of our self-confidence starting around age seven, eight, nine, mm-hmm. and it keeps going downhill and downhill. And I personally don't think women really get it back until we're in our thirties, sometimes yeah. even forties. And so sad. We're all of a sudden like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What happened in all that time? Where did I, <laughs> where did I lose myself? Yeah. No, that's so true. And so, yeah. So from there then, um, yeah. How did you end up getting into um, prostitution then? What did that kind of journey look like in and through <laughs> that <laughs> part of your story? I know that's probably a long story, so share what you yeah. like. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you recognize that because, yeah, to, to cover that all, we don't have enough time for it. Yeah, it's too broad. So it's more like, here's the, you tell us what you want us, what you think is helpful for us to yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was one little hit after another, really. So it was, again, falling privy to then dating the same type of males after that, one after another, that all of them were emotionally abusive or neglectful or, you know, breadcrumbing me in some kind of way. Um, And then uh, a lot of them were financially exploitative too and abusive. So I always had a job. I've always you know, to some degree, I would even say almost been a workaholic, which is not anything certainly to brag about. But, um, you know, a lot of people want to say, oh, you got into the sex trade because you were lazy and you didn't want to work. And I say, well, actually, when I 
did enter prostitution, I was working five part-time jobs all at once because I couldn't get one good paying career that gave me benefits, that gave me a livable wage. So I was just maxing out every spare second of my day trying to find a way to earn some type of income. Mm. And so uh, the prison that I mentioned, that was one of the five jobs that I was working wow. I was also uh, detailing luxury cars at a BMW dealership. I was waitressing till early morning hours at a comedy club. I was uh, personal training at a gym. And I was also doing uh, reception and assistance at a therapy, a physiotherapy clinic. So I was just jumping around and jumping around. And meanwhile, I'm trying to really, um, you know, make these men love me and trying to which is also a full-time job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when they're the kind when they're those kind of men that's that never ends. <laughs> so. Oh. And yeah, and it was just toxic. It was really bad mm -hmm. and um so you know I'd be trying to help them too and and even the friends I had I can't even put it all on the romantic relationships I had but mm -hmm. for whatever reason I I just had this magnet in me at the time where I was drawing all these broken people into my life and mm -hmm. so even just the friends that I I was spending time with they couldn't pay their bills and you know so they'd say to me like my power is about to be cut off and I'd say oh my god here here's $200 pay your power bill like let me help you let me save you and mm -hmm. I think I just had this savior complex which you know it's great to try to want to help people but I just had no boundaries and mm -hmm. no um, ability to recognize that I was compromising myself so much in trying to help other people when they weren't really taking any initiative to go to the extremes that I was to work five jobs at once to, mm -hmm. you know, try to sustain my livelihood in there. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was just all these jobs. And of course you pair that with being young and not having any understanding really about finances. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand, um, just basic banking concepts and mm -hmm. tax, you know, issues and, all this stuff. So even though I was, you know, spending all this time working, I was just not um, financially in investing or advancing in any kind of way. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So kind of just survival mode, like yeah, yeah, just trying to get through like one day at a time and and pay your things and keep going. But like a hamster wheel, you're not really, which is exhausting. <laughs> that wears yeah. you down in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. Like running on the treadmill, right? Yeah, <laughs> the worst. You're going nowhere. Nobody likes running on. I I shouldn't say nobody, but I don't like running on treadmills. Yeah, the treadmill. <laughs> nobody likes it. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, it was at one of my five jobs that I opened up the back of this Edmonton Sun newspaper, and at that point, now I already had sixty thousand dollars of debt. I was behind on my payments for my place. I was no food in my fridge, barely any gas in my car, like on the verge of within probably a month, maybe two months being homeless because I, I was so maxed out credit cards. Like there, I was at my financial breaking point. So I mm. saw this ad in my newspaper that was very glamorous and said adult entertainment make $2,000 a week. And they were looking for women 18 to 30. And I, I just didn't know what to do. And I thought, Oh my God, like, I don't make $2,000 a week. This is more than I make now. So I, I need to call and just see what this is. And I didn't even know what for. I was so naive and sheltered really in regards to uh, prostitution and the, old, the whole industry. So mm -hmm. didn't know what I was getting into, but that was the, the first 
toe dipped into the water right there was seeing that ad. And, yeah. Yeah. and when you're in a situation where I think it's just a lot of these things, it's always driven by desperation. Like when our decisions are driven by desperation, then like we will do anything. That's again, kind of comes back to that choice thing of, you know, so it's like, well, you chose to like, it's that, well, yeah, but you don't know, nobody tells you what i mean maybe more so maybe more so now people are talking about it a little bit more hopefully the next generation growing up knows a little bit more about what they're getting themselves into but it is yeah it's when you have that that desperation of like you are in a space where like you said you're gonna be homeless you don't know where your next meal is coming from and you're exhausted this is literally the worst possible time to make a decision, but you're forced to make a decision, right? Like everyone's like, don't make a decision when you're tired, hungry, stressed. like don't make important decisions. Well, where, what are you stuck with to make this kind of a decision, right? So you're going to, of course, $2,000 a week sounds, you're not going to worry about whether it's too good to be true. Mm -hmm. You're like, I need, I need to, I need something because I'm, the alternative looks worse. Yeah. And, so then, so I'm guessing you just, you, you kind of, you call the ad and you go in and kind of, did you hit a point where you realized like, oh crap, like what have I gotten myself into? Um, I think it's different for everyone. So. Oh yeah, that was, <laughs> well, and, and really, um, I don't know if you've seen it and I mentioned it in every one of the conversations that I have, but I wrote this paper called the instep model. And I really think it's so important for people to read it. Um, and I'm we will, so we're going to link to it. Make sure you send that to me and we'll link to it in the podcast notes. Cause I, I have not read it and I would like to. Oh, fantastic. I will. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And, and so it's this model that I wrote that was published by dignity journal out of the States. And um, okay. it's really one of the things I'm most proud of that I've done in 10 years of activism, because I really had all these thoughts um, that I'm always trying to kind of get out to explain the process or the journey mm -hmm. because it's just so complex. And I'm like, I need to somehow get this into a very understandable, articulate manner on a piece of paper <laughs> for someone to read it because, uh, you know, you start talking about it and you miss points and you, you yeah. don't really cover everything. But the paper really... Um, explains my journey and the journey that I see and did see countless women go through whenever they are in the commercial sex industry. And mm -hmm. so it's bell curve. You're starting very low, you go up very high and you come back down very low. And really that's the best way that I can say in a nutshell mm -hmm. to frame what my experience was. And again, that that I saw of, of many other women. So when I entered, like you said, I was exhausted, like just in this state of having worked like 16 hour days, like for two years straight, I was constantly sleep deprived. I was stressed out. I was, you know, just at my breaking point where anything would have been an improvement from where I was coming from. So when you enter the industry and you're at that very low point, all that you see is that upward curve, right? I'm going to make money. I'm going to be able to spend less time earning money and actually can go back to living my life a little bit and doing things I enjoy. I won't be so stressed out. I will, you know, have some freedom. I can pay for school. I can live comfortably financially. Like all you can see is the upward climb. Mm -hmm. And that was really my experience was going in there at a very, very low point in my life. And of course, having some type of uh, hesitation and nervousness because I was just so ignorant. I, I didn't know what to expect. And I had seen, 
the whole sex work is work, but also the, the severe trafficking depictions and narrative. So I just really didn't know what laid ahead of me. But um, once I started making money and, and things were improving in my financial uh, portion of my life, it was almost like every other worry dropped off for a while. Mm -hmm. and anything else couldn't touch me. It couldn't bother me because that was my sole focus because I was in that state of desperation and stress and finance worry, like you said. So um, for the first, you know, probably few years, it was, uh, aside from a, a short mental breakdown early on, which then converted me into that sex worker mindset, it, mm. it was overall um, not a bad experience, really. Like, terrible things were happening to me, but I was justifying them. I was rationalizing mm. them, dismissing them, because the money was such a powerful soother and distractor mm -hmm. of what I was subjecting myself to and being subjected to mm -hmm. but eventually that wears off and so it was probably about five years the industry and uh and then you know everything just changed that's when all of it just started to switch and uh then I started that downward descent mm. That was where I was just not coping. I was um, struggling to, it was a different struggle. Like I wasn't struggling financially anymore mm -hmm. at that point because I had now graduated college and I, you know, had paid off my debts and I had been responsible enough uh, with my money, but I had gotten sucked into sex work ideology so, so deeply and mm -hmm. I had ended up building my own brothel five years into the seven uh -huh. uh, uh, no, sorry, three years into the seven years that I was in the industry. So even though my personal finances were in a better state, I mm -hmm. had then invested a whole bunch of my own earnings of prostitution money into creating this business, quote unquote, uh, mm -hmm. that I mm -hmm. thought would help women keep them safe. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, then I was trapped in the industry, not for anything other than, um, you know, being locked into a commercial lease and having invested over a hundred thousand dollars of wow. I had sold my body to earn. So then it's hard to leave for a multitude of other reasons, right? You don't want to get sued by your landlord for breaking a lease. And mm -hmm. you, you're trying to tell yourself, well, I don't want to make this all for nothing. Um, <laughs> so I, I just got to stick it out. I, you know, I got to keep just going. And mm -hmm. there's so many things that just swirl around in your mind. And it really took me till years and years after exiting the industry before things started to calm down mentally for me where I could truly reflect on what I had gone through. Mm -hmm. You said you had started this kind of business within the business that you had had made to help keep women safe. If you can, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the important thing for the listeners to know is that there's two types of people in the industry in my opinion there's sex sellers and there's sex workers okay. sex sellers are people who are in the industry and you know like me they were entering not out of desire to be there but out of destitution lack of resources and options and they are not captured yet by the mindset of sex work is work mm -hmm. unfortunately i think the majority of sex sellers eventually get swallowed up by sex work ideology. I wrote a paper a few years ago for the Radical Notion, which is a feminist magazine in the UK. Okay. And I typed that paper, um, sex work ideology uh, is a form of cult-like thought reform. Wow. Because 
really much has this uh, almost like a gang mentality to it. Like you're either in or you're out. It's us versus them. It's and I get it. Like you know, when you're a marginalized population, you tend to see others as your enemy mm-hmm. rather than larger issues as your uh, you know enemy or what's against you. Fine. So mm-hmm. um, it's kind of the whole like you either support the idea of sex work or you want us dead and Mm -hmm. black and white thinking and um it's very hard whenever you enter the industry if you're not aligning with that mindset people will ostracize you within the industry because they're like this is who we are this is what we do and it's awesome and you're either on board with that or you're anti-industry you can't afford to be ostracized like it's already a tough place to be in so many ways like you've already kind of alluded to again that's not you don't really have a choice you because to survive you can't be on the outside yeah it it swallowed me up just like it did everybody else i knew at the time and even the people it didn't swallow up they would still parrot sex work ideology language and say those things because again they were seeing that everybody else had been swallowed up and to go against that uh you just don't do that in that industry it's if you come out of the treatment room as we would call them the treatment room um as as you come out of there if you were like oh i hate selling sex i hate these men this life sucks like it's terrible Mm -hmm. you're shattering and challenging the conditioning of the women who are you know themselves it's so great as a form of you know sustainability and survival and mental mental survival Mm -hmm. so you know you had to to some degree either just not say nothing not say anything at all or you just you know had to say what was the soothing language which is oh yeah i'm i'm a boss bitch i'm a queen i'm you know making the i'm that empowerment (laughs) that's one thing that i have people say to me all the time when we get into discussions about strip clubs and prostitution and all these different things. And they'll say things like, especially if there are people who frequent these yeah. establishments, um, <laughs> because we need to compartmentalize, right? That's, um, mm-hmm. They'll say things like, well, I asked, I asked her if she likes her job and she said, yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing what you've just shared, just that little bit of it's literally you are conditioned and almost in a way forced and compelled to say that. Mm-hmm. that was I think a really helpful thing to hear you say of like no this actually is like you can't just take that at face value and then pat yourself on the back and be like this is empowering for her and I'm like just because you think something is empowering doesn't actually mean that it is well and and I really want to be clear that like I whenever I say these things it's more so norms rather than absolutes mm-hmm. so I have met um, I would say one woman for sure. She's the only one that I can really say one for sure, but uh, less than one handful of women who have mostly convinced me that they do have equally viable options and that they do truly choose the sex industry. So when people say like, you don't know my story and you know, you can't speak for everyone. No, nobody can ever speak for anyone, yeah. but patterns and trends mm-hmm. and by large most women don't desire to ultimately kind of be treated like a pin cushion by men yeah. who are protected in their anonymity and given a free pass to come and go and to mm-hmm. basically say and do almost whatever they want to a woman because they know that you know yes she can 
protest and and reject him but but can she really at the end of the day can she actually do that when she's economically destitute or perhaps being forced or trafficked Mm -hmm. by somebody else who's expecting her to make a quota and Mm -hmm. so it's like you said you know like nobody would ever say hi john you know welcome for your session i'm gonna hate the next hour with you it's gonna be terrible but thanks for coming and yeah nobody's gonna say that right so it's so frustrating whenever i see men say like well i don't purchase trafficked women and even if they're not trafficked, you don't know that you don't know all the women that i stay with they actually like it i'm just like i lied to every single man that came through there and many of those men i actually like them as people but there was never one moment that i was actually enjoying the transactional sexual encounter that was happening Mm -hmm. and and I often say it was weird. It was like this dissociative um, action that like I'd be there as Andrea and I'd be talking to them. And everything would be totally fine and normal and cool. And then once it was time for me to take off my clothes, it was like once I took the straps off my dress and lowered my dress, it was like I peeled off my humanity mm-hmm. or layer of me. And, and all of a sudden it was just this like cover of dissociation that completely took over and I was no longer physically in my body when those things mm-hmm. happened. And then once I get dressed at the end, it was like, boom, I'm back. Mm-hmm. And it was so um, traumatic really for that mm-hmm. to happen just in and out of your body, in and out, in and out. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'd smile throughout the process. I mm-hmm. talk normally, but I wasn't there for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I was checked out emotionally and, and mentally in some regards and, mm-hmm. You know, so did I express that I hated them? No. I think it's probably one of the most important things or one of the most helpful things to help people break down that the compartmentalizing that they do to justify not having to change their lifestyle to still be mad at human trafficking, but not actually change. None of us like to have to change our lives or things that we like or things that we enjoy um, or that are filling something in us. Because the thing with the thing about people who buy sex is not that they're monsters. It's that they're broken and there's something that they're also trying to to fill so and I think like what you what you shared about how as soon as you would start to take your clothes off it was like you were peeling away your humanity I'm like I could cry like I, I'm not I I won't I'm gonna try but I just when you said that I would I just said that's that's the thing like you cannot you know go in and treat somebody like an object unless you literally remove the humanity from them you have to fail to see them as a person Mm -hmm. and and to be able to stay in the room where those things happen you have to like not see yourself as that like you have to take yourself out of it and i like i just think if if you're a person who who buys sex like just think about like think about that for a minute that this person that you have hired to do a job, quote unquote, to work for you, they have to leave themselves outside the room to complete this task. Is this how we actually want to treat people? How is this empowering? Again, tell me again how it's empowering when somebody has to leave themselves outside and disassociate from themselves. But these are people. This is people. This is not you know, just some some problem, some big problem that's out there in the world. No, this is actually people <laughs> who are being treated like garbage. 
And yeah. it's not okay. <laughs> yeah. And whenever I was active, like, I couldn't see it that way because I had turned off so much of my emotional mm. uh, humanity, really, like mm -hmm. you said. I, I was so uh, always intellectualizing everything. So whatever happened, mm. it was only ever picked apart in my mind. And I would never get down into my heart space to say, like, how do you actually feel when that's happening to you? Like, oh, if if you'd be aware of that, you'd realize that you are not yeah. even feeling that because you are numbing yourself out so much because mm. when you do do it and feel it, it is horrific. Mm -hmm. And so you end up in this like glazed over autopilot zombie kind of deadened state. Mm -hmm. And it was so um, just, uh, you know, happening to me without me so unconscious mm -hmm. in, in it's happening that I didn't even notice I was doing that until really I started to notice it in other women. And that came oh. about studying like violence against women and, and learning about trauma and learning about dissociation in my schooling. And then whenever I would mm -hmm. go into duos with women and I would see those things happening to them, where it was like, once they were taken off their clothes, you, it was like, I was looking at a different woman. It wasn't the woman who I, you know, chat with, you know, on the, in the staff room or the woman that I would go out on weekends with, it was this zombie. And mm -hmm. she would stay and do these things that were rhythmic and were, uh, just almost like you know a, a play it wasn't real it was like these puppets moving around to achieve this goal but it wasn't a human heartfelt exchange it wasn't intimacy it wasn't passion it wasn't things that we we think of when we think of sex and and that's a problem is that so many people can't understand the difference between transactional sex and actual healthy sexuality of mm. not sold sex or most men thankfully are not sex buyers in canada we we know that it's uh, estimates um you know are low uh but we assume it's around seven to twenty percent of men to be sex buyers in canada so um, you know encouraging like it's still a problem but it, it's encouraging but it also creates a problem that people can't fully understand the magnitude of the issue mm -hmm. that's yeah that's so true. Um, so you're you're running this kind of business within a business to oh, yeah, and I um, help the women. Yeah, I know it's okay. I would I had to take a minute because <laughs> I was like, I feel like we were gonna go somewhere, and I took some turns. <laughs> Who put us to podcast? We are not functioning very well here. <laughs> no, it's so great. These are all things that need to be said. So I'm, I'm more than happy to oblige to the rabbit trails. Um, yeah, so tell, yeah, just kind of take us through a little bit more of that, of kind of what that looked like to to create something that you felt was helping uh, to keep the women safe. So basically for the first three years, I operated out of three different studios or body rub centers, as we call them here in Edmonton. Um, our city actually licenses and regulates brothels as body rub centers here. And so I always had this mindset of, safety it's it's safe because my city licenses it they come in and do checks on us and they hand us pictures of these guys who are horrible and are removing condoms or choking us or running out without paying stalking us doing all these things so mm -hmm. i kept on falling prey to what i call the safety myth which mm -hmm. is the belief that there is a safe way for prostitution to occur um now i know differently i know that women no matter what being the smaller 
sex that is typically not comparable in men to strength when we are alone and we are in a private space with a, a man who is entitled and sexually charged there's just no way to ensure our safety we are vulnerable uh, especially in those circumstances but i kept on thinking it's you know all these bad things that are happening to me in all these studios are because i'm operating for a bad owner um, the owner doesn't care about me enough. Uh, you know, the room setup is not good enough. Uh, the location of the brothel is in a bad neighborhood. Um, the clientele who come here are just bad. You know, it was, you know, how the studio is marketing itself. It's not high end enough. So I'm not getting, you know, good enough clientele, so to speak. So it, it was always me trying to find an excuse. I was really the biggest defender of abuse when I look back on it because I kept on making excuses for it and and not really just identifying that the problem was the exploitation that was at hand. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, just feeling like I had no real agency to reject a man who would come in because, you know, the owner wants to make room rental fees and they'll be disappointed if you turn away men or um, just stuff like that. I, I kept on saying, I just need to be the one who owns the brothel and I can choose a better neighborhood and yeah. I can get Edmonton's most high end brothel, which I did at the time. Um, and all those things will solve this problem and we'll get just the doctors and the lawyers and the, you know, the nice gentlemen who really respect us. And again, falling privy to all these myths. Yeah. So, I was just tired of uh, witnessing abuse, experiencing abuse, and feeling like there was some way to actually mitigate that. So I, um, at 25 years old, maxed out all my credit cards again. I took a loan from family, and I built a City of Edmonton licensed brothel, which mm -hmm. had two rooms. Uh, most of the ones in the city are between three and five rooms. Okay. So. I didn't do it as a means of making money and becoming rich or anything like that uh, from other women's sex selling activity. It was a place for me to sell sex under my own licensed establishment and have one room to uh, have other women who were looking for a more high-end place that, like me, were advertising as independent providers okay. to be able to rent a room, a, rent a safe space. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I learned early on, it didn't take long at all, that it doesn't matter. You could be in the fastest place, you could have the, the richest client, the most successful client who is a doctor making, you know, high six figures a year. None of it matters. At the end of the day, it's that power dynamic and the entitlement and the objectification. And those three things are just this nasty um, mixture Mm -hmm. of what creates harm and so um mm -hmm. yeah i it didn't take long like i said before i realized like none of this matters now the abuse is just here and now i'm putting a roof over the abuse i'm, <laughs> the abuse, I'm enabling it mm -hmm. and then i felt incredibly guilty and mm -hmm. still to this day I, I carry immense amounts of guilt that i you know ever contributed to that because mm -hmm. still, that brothel is in existence and operating here in my city and I know women who have operated out of there since my departure and even though it's owned by a, a very lovely woman who sells sex herself mm -hmm. they still experience abuse in that venue and so um I left a stain on my city is is really what I did mm -hmm. and 
very remorseful for it. I wish I could undo it. Mm. Uh, often said if I could win the lottery, I'd go and buy this <laughs> and shut it down. But yeah, you know, another one would just pop up again. <laughs> that's but. and that's the thing is like if 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 you hadn't done it, somebody would have it, and like you were trying to do what you thought was good for the people around you with with what you had, with what you were given, with what you knew. Yeah. yeah. When you think sex work is work, you don't think that there's anything wrong with owning a venue where sex is being sold. And it's you actually know. no very noble then to try and make it safe and to not have because you see the horrific things and you know the horrific things that go on. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you want to make it safer if you th if you are if you're made to believe that there's a way to do that? Why wouldn't you try? Yeah, if and you that's did. What I see, like, <laughs> conflict between you know uh abolitionists of the sex trade and and supporters of full decriminalization is all of us no matter where we sit on the political spectrum we all want one thing and that's safety for women who are in the commercial sex industry mm -hmm. and so you know it's very frustrating to see the conflict that occurs between us when we do share the same goal but we just see a different pathway to getting there based mm -hmm. on how the industry abolitionists right. view it as a form of violence against women as a, a type of bribery or coerced sex whereas you know um supporters of full decrim and the sex worker community particularly see it as a form of labor and mm -hmm. seeing labor rights and um you know safety checks and all those things as the means to uh making it safe but mm -hmm. again i just having believed that at one time mm -hmm. and from it um you know it, it's i just can't understand anymore how i once believed that having yeah. that switch with additional insight and exposure and and knowledge and so then what kind of i mean again this is another this is a whole process kind of question but so you know the process of leaving then so you had this business and that made it really difficult then to leave because now you have all this money invested in this and you know and so at kind of at what point do you start you really really wanting to leave and you know what is finally the way that you were able to do that uh so five year five out of the seven years was when mm. i kind of had my my awakening as i often think of it as and that was really where i realized that you know this was not healthy um i could now identify that i was dissociating that i was contributing mm -hmm. to the narrative that course of sex was empowering and safe mm -hmm. and women and uh just basically everything that we now know or that i believe i that i can see it as now i should say mm -hmm. um so year five was really when that started but it's weird because when you are so conditioned into a cult which mm -hmm. i will say maybe a cult <laughs> um the programming that has to occur so it wasn't like this boom i woke up one day and all of a sudden okay i'm ready to quit like mm -hmm. I, those moments would happen but then there would also be these brief moments of myself trying to convince myself again no 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 you're just panicking you're just being paranoid you're just falling for the feminist rhetoric <laughs> mm -hmm. bad for you you know from the prudes and the religious people and you know mm -hmm. it, and so it, it kept on it was like this push pull mm -hmm. but it kept on getting stronger and stronger and gaining momentum of pulling me away from it mm -hmm. so 
um, it, it was a process for sure. And it took me two years of, uh, kind of working through that mentally, but then also getting my affairs in order of mm -hmm. trying to find a way to get out of this commercial lease, which I did have a lot of people uh, approach me about buying the brothel, but most of them were men. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt like they had connections to organized crime and I didn't feel good about having any man purchase the studio because mm -hmm. they were not selling sex. And so I always said, if I'm going to sell it, I want it to be to a woman who is actively selling herself because mm -hmm. I think some inherent uh, empathy and understanding that comes mm -hmm. in that role then. So, yeah. Um, yeah, lots of creepy guys tried to buy it. And I, I don't even know how many of them were serious. I think some of them just wanted to come in and walk through a brothel and talk to a sex seller and they were just kind of weird. It was very uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> As you can imagine. Yeah. And, okay. and then there was also um, quite a few women uh, that were young Asian women that wanted to buy it as well. But, and I, again, I can't say this for all of them, but I do know that in Edmonton, we do have an issue with trafficking of Asian women through our broth systems. And uh, a lot of them, I don't think that they actually had the money to purchase it. I think that they had a figurehead role and okay. that there was actually a benefactor of theirs or possibly a trafficker that was asking them to uh, be the face of the, yeah. the studio while a man or a, a more um, experienced older woman, also yeah. by a man, uh, would yeah. take you know the real ownership role of it. So... Mm -hmm. It was just bad feeling after bad feeling. But then uh, my duo partner, a, a woman that I had uh, partnered with quite a bit, she bought me out. Okay. So she, in my opinion, was the best option. But still to this day now, looking back on that, I wish that I would have just collapsed the company and claimed bankruptcy. Wow. But I didn't even know about bankruptcy. Yeah. I, I didn't even have an understanding. And that would not have seemed attractive at the time, though, either. Because with what you... Yeah, it, this is coming now with you know like a new mindset and a new way of looking back and seeing that experience that wouldn't have looked like a a helpful option at the time that would have looked like ending up right where you started yeah yeah and <laughs> so then, i it's like even yeah. if you had known would you have chosen that like i probably wouldn't have i would have been like oh my gosh that sounds terrible you know I, who knows right who knows i didn't know because like if I would have defaulted on my commercial lease, I would have owed the landlord $80,000. Oh, so that's like I, I'm one of those people. I just don't like to have debt, like money. Oh, I have same. fears. Yeah. Fears with money and insecurity with money. And I've had that my whole life. And so I wouldn't have just ignored it and been like, take me to court. I would have been like, I'll pay you back the 80,000. <laughs> and then how do yeah. I do that? I go back to the same situation that I had just left, which was operating yeah. at our studios um to make that money so yeah it, it has this ability to suck you in so deep the industry and every gain that mm -hmm. you are making so say you're in a really bad apartment and all of a sudden you get a down payment now you can have a nice condo that you've bought that's great those are all gains that people want to make but every step up that you take in life while you're selling sex is further entrenching you into the industry and that reliance on that sex trade income to meet that lifestyle. Right. And, you know, to this day, like now, if you were to ask me now, like, would you rather have debt or go 
into the sex industry, I would take debt any day. Mm. That's just because I've gone through that and now I feel differently about it. But if you asked me early on as, as my past shows, I chose uh, or decided, I should say, I decided to go the route Mm. of prostitution because the debt at the time seems scarier to me. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard decisions. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because it seems like in that situation too, like the, the consequences end up being so much more far reaching too, depending on, and it's just so hard to, to know in that moment, what, what Mm -hmm. is the best thing to do, right? It, yeah. yeah, I would not make better choices than someone else, quote unquote. I wouldn't a hundred percent. I have, you don't know what you would do. You can say, you can hope that you would like you said, like, oh, I, you know, I, if I could go back, I would, you know, declare bankruptcy, whatever. But none of us knows what we would actually do if we found ourselves in that particular situation. We do not know because we, if we have not been there, we do not know. That's also why we see so many younger women in the industry is because of being naive. And again, that's not an insult to young women. You know, they're still very intelligent for their years, many of them, but you know, young people are by nature a lot less educated and worldly and all those things than you are when you double your age and suddenly, you know, a woman in your late thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, you're a completely different person. And it's going to be a lot harder to convince somebody in that stage of their life to, to walk into that situation than it is someone who is like, I don't know who I am or where I'm going or what's happening. And then if you add any kind of, like you mentioned at the beginning, the like self-esteem things or that anything's happened to make you feel small and insignificant and like you can't stand up for yourself. Like so much easier to be groomed and conditioned. So much more vulnerable. Yeah. And so, you know, I often get people saying like, nobody forced you. You weren't like, you know, trafficked, you weren't groomed. But I say, you know what? Society groomed me. And I see it happening to young women like constantly still to this day. Like Every video that you see online, like prime example, you look at all the riots that are happening with mm. young people in the States. All you see in these riots is women twerking. Like every video that I see, there's women twerking. And I'm like, you're out there smacking windows, but you're stopping to twerk. Like, what is going on? Like, like what is happening? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the sexualizing of women, it's always occurred, mm. of course, but it's like, it was never celebrated like it is now. And it's almost like if you're not doing it, well, you're not a sexual woman mm-hmm. if you're not identifying your sexuality and, and yourself. Right. And so it's just, it's hard because, you know, then you see it and you're trying to talk about it and you're trying to get people to understand it. And then you get attacked for that because yeah. those people see you as the enemy and someone who's like a buzzkill mm-hmm. and they <laughs> understand and i i keep on wanting to say like i'll see you in 20 years and and then and we'll see how you feel then because you're not going to feel how you feel now i can almost guarantee you right or like or you know i'll ask you then what kind of situations you ended up in and had to walk through in your life Mm -hmm. you know because you lived into that that mindset that was just it's in culture it's all around you and you want to fit in that's also part of being that age right it's yeah but if you kind of think this is weird this doesn't feel great to me you're just you kind of go with it and it it's kind of part of that yeah Yeah, kind of part of that stage of life yeah I do have like yeah a couple more things I want to hit um before we end but what is something so I know that sometimes when when you're well often when we're listening to people's stories we see ourselves 
in them. The number of times I've heard people say, I'm just doing this like to get myself through college or, you know, what, what would you say <laughs> to our listeners who are, and maybe even women, girls, whatever, who are in that kind of vulnerable age range of where that might seem tempting or that might seem like. Well, it's, I think it's so hard because in that moment, it's almost like there isn't anything that you can really say to someone. Mm. Like, um, oh, I shouldn't say that. Like in our city here, I used to, uh, before I withdrew for ethical reasons, I mm. used to present to the women who were getting licensed by the city to go operate out of brothels and escort agencies. Mm. And there were a few times that I'd give my little spiel up at the front and they would walk out of the class and they would say everything that you said changed my mind and I realized that this is not good for me and it's not um, what I want because I had never heard that these things could happen to me and mm. I always just heard about the money and the glamour and the freedom and you know mm -hmm. the accolades and and all the things all the good yeah. that there and so I think sometimes, yes, there is certain things that you can say in the moment and it just hits someone and it's boom right there. But experience is the best teacher, but it's also the hardest teacher because, you know, it pre presents you with the test before you get the lesson. Oftentimes the sad reality is that people sometimes I don't want to say need to go through it because I don't think anyone needs to be subjected to abuse, but yeah. it often takes someone experiencing something firsthand like you said earlier for them to really grasp the emotional side to it and to integrate that into the thought process and mm -hmm. to how to piece it all together of okay what's my overall reflective opinion or perception of this mm -hmm. and uh so you know i i could really probably say anything and everything to people but what will stick and yeah. i learned a lot of times all that we're really doing is planting a seed and mm -hmm. that's too because you know I, I i'm not paying people's bills and i wish i could pay mm -hmm. bills but i can't and we live in a capitalist society where women struggle and suffer so mm -hmm. it's bound to happen that until we correct a lot of those issues and create a more egalitarian society amongst mm -hmm. men and women we're, we're going to continue to see women enter prostitution mm -hmm. but if we can plant a seed before they get in there um, I think that that's very powerful because then it gives some type of framing to the experience. Mm -hmm. So for me, because I had never heard someone say, uh, well, what I had heard was sex work is work and human trafficking is terrible and bad. I had wow. never heard someone say prostitution can be bad. Mm. It was just, you know, this is really good and this is really bad. There was nothing in the middle. So mm. I couldn't whenever things were happening to me that were bad i was like how is this happening like this isn't nobody told me about this you know like i'm in sex work this should all be awesome because i'm not traffic and yeah. i think you know had someone given me um that that information that hey you know even if you're not forced it could go really bad for you mm -hmm. and you know, if I had heard some radical feminist rhetoric, some socialist feminist rhetoric that kind of said, this is a form of violence against women, but understandably, you're going to do what you have to do in the moment. Mm -hmm. I think I would have become a sex worker in, in the mm -hmm. mind. I think I would have remained a sex seller and I think I wouldn't have been so captured and I wouldn't have stayed as long and I would have had different tools in my toolkit to mm -hmm. process and, and heal throughout that journey. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 
I, I don't know what I would say to women. I think if I could say anything, truthfully, it would be spend time with older women. <laughs> because older women are incredibly insightful, worldly, <laughs> um, knowledgeable, and powerful. <laughs> they are unapologetic. <laughs> they don't need any, you know, exterior um, affirmation. Most yeah. women that I know who are in their 50s and 60s are just powerhouse women. Yeah. And, you know, that was the biggest, uh, best decision I ever made was once I turned 30, almost all my friends were in their 60s and 70s. I, I didn't spend That's time. amazing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to say younger women are not any of those things, no, but, but, but that life experience, you can't get that until you're mm -hmm. in your years. And so in the last 10 years of being around women that were a couple generations ahead of me, oh my God, my worldview has changed so much. Mm -hmm. And I have learned so much and, and, you know, it's really helped me to frame what, what I experienced. And so that would be my biggest thing is, you know, stop hanging out with the women that are going to the clubs, <laughs> partying, twerking and doing yeah. all that with the women who are organizing, who are centering women, who are fighting misogyny and sexism and patriarchal mm -hmm. practices and those things. And you will just mm -hmm. transform into a powerhouse woman yourself. And maybe, yeah, that's, that's so good. And that this is kind of one of the questions I was going to ask is kind of, I always, and I always ask is how can we help, which help, I don't love the, love the word, but how can we, what can we do? Because this is always the thing people find out about, you know, the issue of, you know, sex work and human trafficking. And it's always this very overwhelming thing when it's new. And then you're immediately like, I must do something, but I don't know what to do. And mm -hmm. it's like, you're like I need to start an organization it's like no you don't <laughs> I'm like maybe maybe but I think that what you've said is actually really really good for because any single person who is listening to this podcast can do what you've just said can be a, a pow like a person a powerhouse woman like you said you don't even have to be 60 but that's great but like you know sometimes even I feel like the women in their 50s and 60s they really feel like well no one's gonna want to listen to me no we need we actually really need to listen to you we actually really need you and the you know the kids the girls who are on the street twerking they need you more than you realize to be like present and to show up and so it is this really powerful tool that we have as you know even when like even if like we've never been in the industry we don't understand it we don't know you know, we, or we don't know what it's like to be in someone's exact situation, but there is, there is something that we can do. And that is being that kind of that influence in somebody's life, just being in someone's life, just having relationship with people and walking with them and being like, you know what, you're going to, you're going to decide to do what you're going to do. I can't stop you. I'm, I'm not going to manipulate you in or out of something. I'm going to tell you the truth. Yeah. I'm gonna like I'm gonna be I'm gonna be here I'm gonna make this a space where you can come and tell me what's actually happening because I did you know if you have a space like you said if you had a space where you could have kind of processed through that thing of wow every time I go to remove my clothes I disassociate like what if you had said that out loud to somebody outside of the industry like just what what might have what might have happened no it wouldn't have changed everything in an instant but what what difference might that seemingly small thing of having somewhere to go with that that wasn't the constant rhetoric of this is empowering this is great you're great like everything's good you love this kind of thing just like what would happen we just have to show like just be there and be a space where like you can tell me anything i'm not gonna walk away mm -hmm. and that's the seed again too right like that's nothing would have changed by that being said to me because mm -hmm. i still had all the debt and i was still yeah. 
you know, although in that situation, but it would have chipped away at that yeah. conditioning effect that just swallows women up and keeps us on the hamster wheel, just turning and frantically going towards a goal that we're never actually going to achieve. Yeah. And um, what if some of those seeds were planted before these girls even get into, right? Like how much more open are their eyes going to be to like, see what's really going on? And like you said, maybe they won't stay as long. Maybe yeah. they'll, you know, and, and, and then, you know, come out of it with that, like, yeah, because the longer the longer you're in, the yeah, just the harder it harder it is coming back out of that and trying to transition back into trying to live your life, which I'm sure we could also talk about for hours and hours. But yeah. <laughs> that has to be another podcast for the time. Yeah. yeah. But you're so right. Like you look at just media, right? Like media is a big influence on everyone's life. And there is message after message after message of hypersexualization sex work ideology, you know, all these things. But when do we actually see any type of media that challenges sexism? We, we don't see it. Like, you don't see feminist TV shows. You don't see anything along those lines. And if you do, it's maybe like one exposure versus 500 that are, you know, hypersexualizing because sex sells and everyone wants yeah. that talking like taboo thing which really it's kind of weird because it's not even taboo anymore because it's yeah. so in your face like it's taboo now to be anti-exploitation right. <laughs> yeah no it's That's true it's taboo. yeah <laughs> no it's it's so it's so true and I think that's also, um, if we can segue a little bit into the docu-series that you're part of, and I just, I'm so excited about this because I think this is also, this is a form of media that is going to be put out there, and you said you co-authored a book as well, so there's, there are, you know, there's starting to be more of these ways that people can even stumble across some of this information <laughs> in a helpful way that will be like, okay, there's more, there's so much more to this story than, mm -hmm. than maybe what you've just heard that's blaring in your face every single day um tell us a little bit about all these fun projects that you've been working as much as you can i know it's not all released yet and whatever but this will just make us want to watch it even more oh, good. <laughs> yeah, good. So. yeah uh, oh, i'm so pumped i can't wait uh, <laughs> i've been waiting a year already so like, oh no on. like a year for us to even just get to this point of, of having a conversation i'm like i'm so sorry i'm so busy making this film like can we uh, put it off also, yeah, you're you're wonderful for being totally <laughs> worth worth the wait. Worth the uh, wait. Well, so that was really yeah the the push, the big push. Like there was lots of little things that prompted me wanting to to make a film, but the big push was um, the fact that media, in my opinion, looking back on my personal situation, was the number one influencing factor of me entering the industry, wow. and, and just not seeing any counter rhetoric to sort ideology so you know nowadays um i don't know if reading rates are diminished but it kind of seems like you know the book industry isn't as uh popular amongst young people and everybody's all about netflix and streaming and yeah. everything's digital right because you can just access it right away and you don't have to do anything except sit and stare at a screen so yeah. <laughs> i uh, you know, I, I've done a fair amount of writing and, and stuff like that, but I always found that whenever I'd write like a, a paper or anything like that, it would just sort of get circulated among feminists and mm -hmm. people who were seeking out that type of right. information. And it wasn't really reaching the masses and the, the young people who are Netflix and chilling. It's not a Netflix and chill film. It yeah, no. Hopefully, but there, I don't think it would have the chill portion to it after, yeah. uh, if anything, it might 
kind of kill that for a little while. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the odd documentary that talks about uh, the harms of commercial sex, but it's usually always, again, just going back to trafficking, which is mm -hmm. super important. We need those conversations and that to be highlighted. But again, yeah. I wanted to get into the gray area of, you know, the middle of this whole sex work is work, trafficking is bad. Like, well, what else is there? And so I said, um, I think I just need to make a film and try to get it out to millions of screens. And hopefully that will, you know, turn the tide or plant the seed or just have some kind of cultural impact um, that that can make an influence. So that uh, started three and a half years ago. And um, yeah, I just reached out to a local film production company here in Edmonton called Gorilla Motion Pictures. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's two men, just two men in their 30s who are wonderful, uh, Justin Keeper and Sam Reed, that's their names. And um, yeah, I just kind of, it's so funny because I still wonder what they thought, but I just sent them this cold email <laughs> that was kind of like, here's my story, should we make a film? <laughs> That's and they amazing. probably said and were like, this person's unhinged. <laughs> like, what kind of email is this? <laughs> they probably loved it, though. They probably loved it. <laughs> but they obviously liked something in it because they emailed me back. And they're like, yeah, let's meet up and have a conversation. Oh, my gosh. And so, it. yeah, we met at this restaurant. And I kind of just said, like, you know, this is my story. And, and truthfully, I really did not want to make a film about me. Mm. Um I'm sure a lot of people are like, yeah, right. You know, you're, you're just wanting attention or, you know, to be famous. I'm like, listen, if I wanted to be famous, it would not be for saying that I had sex yeah, like, thousands hey. of times. Okay. Like there's no, there's no glory that That's comes in that. Okay. Like you're never going to get accolades for that. You're going to get <laughs> ridiculed, harassed, uh, death threats, you know, you, mm -hmm. nothing good really comes of it. But I also know that, um, I'm in a much better place than a lot of exited women because I have a very good support system and I have um, nothing. I, I will not be fired from a job. I will not have my husband divorce me. Um, any of those things like, you know, I'm able to talk about it. I've been in therapy now for a couple of years. I feel okay to do it. So I, I really kind of, I guess, sacrificed my privacy to yeah. be the center part of this film to talk about some of the issues that women still face, you know, 10 years after exiting. And so the film kind of uh, explores me trying to have the United States of America lift a ban that I got mm. in January of 2010 uh, when I was traveling to America with a sex buyer who did not get a ban uh, alongside me. So um, um. kind of the focal point of it where we keep coming back to that, but then the whole larger series, which is eight one-hour episodes, it really pulls apart just the conversations and the topic and examining, you know, the debate of is sex work work? Mm -hmm. Is it not? Is it violence against women? What are the buyers like? What's the long-term mm -hmm. impacts? What's the legislative responses? Mm -hmm. There's so much to it. Like it's just yeah. such a very, very complex conversation. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of interviews with uh, active and exited women, all who were chosen very carefully to make sure that we weren't re-traumatizing anyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, three buyers, same kind of thing, men who kind of, you know, were a better fit for it. Mm -hmm. so we didn't be platforming, you know, severe abusers, anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But our police chief in there, we've got member of parliament, Arnold Vierson as an interviewee. We've got um. It's activists, uh, indigenous survivors of uh, intergenerational trauma, familial trafficking, wow. 
it, it's so complex. Like we did about 500 hours of footage over 80. Yeah, I'm like, my mind is blown. 500 oh, hours. My God. Yeah. And then to shrink that down into eight hours was just like, oh my gosh. But I'm very fortunate. Uh, Girl in Motion Pictures team, they're just phenomenal. And and I really wanted to have two men making mm-hmm. this. Well, it wasn't two men. I wanted to partner with men yeah. on the project. I didn't want it to be just another group of women that were making an argument against prostitution. Yeah. I wanted to involve men in this and, and bring them to the topic. So, And it is one of those things that I find, like, when I'm, when I'm talking to men about this, a lot of men who are actually passionate about this issue as well, but they're they're like t- like they're like we're not sure how to be helpful and where where to step in and be helpful and so i think yeah i love that like that's a perfect way to like for them to get behind something and be a part of something that's absolutely going to make a difference in a way that's like really helpful yeah because they're not speaking for women right mm-hmm. they, they are giving a platform to women to speak and there is footage in the film and and the opportunity in the film for the sex workers work position. So we do have women who argue, you know, that abolitionists are idiots <laughs> and, you know, say lovely things about us in there. Um, but we need to give airtime to people equally to then let the viewer come up with their own um, yeah. or, or um, understanding of the issue. Like we're not trying to make propaganda, you know, that yeah. tells you this is what you will think and you won't hear any of the opposite mm-hmm. discourse. So, yeah, it's really nice because they they were wonderfully respectful men who gave, you know, the same respect to all people, regardless of where they sat on the political spectrum of the mm. So I'm, I'm just so honored to partner with them. Um, the One of the episodes, episode five, is our Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and uh, oh, wow. Indigenous episode. And so now we're going through the film festival circuit and that episode has been um, selected as a, a film to show at the Julian Duboc International Film Festival at the end of this month in Iowa. Wow. Yeah, and it's wow. actually nominated for Best Documentary as well. So we're <sighs> excited to, to have that next week and hopefully bring home the, the award. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, the next month it actually, the five also screens here in Edmonton at the Metro Cinema May 7th at 4 p.m. So okay. we have a home screening as well um, as part of the Northwest Fest. And then okay. we're waiting on some other ones. We won't probably hear any more until June, but we're hoping more uh, festival acceptances. And then we'll start looking into a distribution deal, hopefully to get that elusive Netflix deal. And yeah. we're reaching people and, and really bringing the conversation then to the forefront, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I know that people are all going to ask like where they can watch it, but the answer is nowhere right now. Nowhere right now. Yeah. Unfortunately, unless you want to come to Edmonton May 7th or go to Iowa. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Would that I could. That, oh, that sounds so good. And like, just, yeah. Thank you for, for the sac. Like I know I realize that that is a sacrifice to put yourself into that space and to walk back into all of those places in your story and um even here on the podcast like I to revisit that over and over again I'm sure can become exhausting also and not always something that you love to do (laughs) you know even though you want to advocate you want to do all of these things but it it does come at a cost to you and I I do want to like acknowledge that verbally here in front of in front of everyone that like the contribution that that you're making in you know in a lot of areas but the one that costs you the most personally i would 
imagine would be the video where like you said you didn't really want to put yourself into it but you did and I I really do like I, I keep coming back to yeah what you said about like regretting opening the the brothel and that if you could shut it down you could and it's so yes like you you planted and, and you grew that thing that now is like it's kind of out of your control that's not something that you can do something with but I I see like all of these other seeds that you're planting in all of these other areas of things that are going to grow so like astronomically that that tiny little weed of a thing is just not even gonna it doesn't even count it's, it's not it just it's Thank you. you know it's not the focal point like you think of a garden and it's like there's this one little thing that you're like don't love that flower so much but there's going to be the other things are going to be so much bigger and so much more beautiful and that one thing that like maybe someday you get a chance to buy it and shut it down maybe but maybe not and you just yeah. just keep ten flowers like honestly I just I don't want you to like spend another minute <laughs> feeling, like, <laughs> uh, feeling like guilty about that because yeah it is it's it's one of those things that we can't we can't go back and none of us can go back and, and change things but we can change the way that we walk forward now and I think it's important for all of us to realize that because we can get really stuck in what we're not able to do what we're not able to change but there's always something little seed that we can plant that will hopefully grow into something really beautiful and I think that yeah I mean a lot of the things that you're doing but I the the documentary I think is and you've put yourself into it like it's very I, I wish it was out like today. I want to go watch it right now. <laughs> Trust me, me too. I'm, I feel like it's like an old project now. Like everyone's like, I'm not film coming along. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I, this film still isn't out because like we've been done filming it quite a while ago. Right. But it's all the, the sound mixing and all of the, you know, titles added and the light balancing. And like, there's yeah. so much more to making a film than I ever expected. But no, thank you so much for saying that. Like, that's such a nice comment. But I, truthfully, I don't think I'll ever be over it because I think once you understand the gravity of, you know, what happens in those, you know, people call them whorehouses. I think they're horror houses. Mm. You know, there's just such yeah. horrific abuse that occurs there under the guise of empowerment and choice that, you know, I don't know, maybe one of your listeners is wealthy and has, you know, 200,000 yeah, Canadian wants to buy it. And if that was the case, you know, then I would turn mm -hmm. it into a space that was like a headquarters for, you know, abolition to meet or a feminist gathering site or, you know, something where it could mm -hmm. be converted to something beautiful. And so I don't I was know. Literally, I was going to say, I'm like, how much is this building? Like maybe yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll find a way to we need a go you know, <laughs> to buy it, like to buy it back and turn it into something, and you know, re like restore and repurpose it to to yeah. something like helpful. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I'm waiting, waiting for the rich John who feels guilty and <laughs> to help. You know, something like that. Like we always hear these men say, "I'm helping these women." I, you know, if it weren't for me, you know, my money, nothing good would happen. Well, okay. Put, like, put we have another idea for where you're sex with them, you know? Like, yeah. Right? Can we? Oh my gosh. Well, I, I have one more question that we always ask at the end of every episode, but I, before I, yeah, before I get into that, just thank you so much for taking the time to come oh. on here and chat with us. Like, I love this. This is so fun. Oh, and I didn't mention the book. You had asked me about Oh my that. gosh, yeah. Okay, hey, do that before I do the last question. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, I'll make it quick. I'll make it real quick. No, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> So the book is called When Men Buy Sex, Who Really Pays? 
And so I've written, co-authored that book with a mother of one of Canada's missing and murdered Indigenous women. Her name is Kathy King, and she is just, she's one of the women who uh, is, you know, a couple decades older than me that I'm so lucky to consider one of my closest friends. And uh, she's been, you know, journeying alongside me and I with her for the last 10 years. We co-present at our sex trade offender program here, which is a John school, as it's often called. And um, yeah, we've collaborated on lots of stuff. And we just finally said, hey, let's do a book because here in Canada, we don't have an actual good um APA type uh, academic mm -hmm. book that really mm -hmm. can be cited well in regards mm -hmm. to the support for sex trade abolition. So yeah. uh, her website is missingcara.ca. Cara is C-A-R-A. So missingcara.ca. And a brilliant activist, a brilliant writer. And uh, that website has her entire story of her daughter's life broken into four seasons. And it's it's a read that really just um, everybody should read her work. It is so moving and so powerful. So we're hoping to have the book out in a couple months. We've got some wonderful endorsements. Uh, and, and yeah, it's just great. We have volunteered our time and 100% of the profits are going to be going to uh, charities and end demand initiatives in, in Canada. So oh, that's amazing. Oh that's my gosh. Helps, you know, helps women. I, I love that. We should have her on the podcast. Um, so the last question that we always ask for one. So um, because we actually are a coffee company, which seems really like out in left field. But anyway, um, we always ask everyone if, if, if you could have your coffee exactly the way that you like it, basically, how would you take it? Who would you drink it with? Where would you be? Ideal. Well, ideal you're not going to like but I don't like coffee and I don't drink coffee. So <laughs> that's okay. Beverage of choice then. I don't understand yeah. you, but I love you. But everybody's like, you don't drink coffee? Like what kind of freak doesn't you're, drink coffee? And I'm like, you're I don't not know. the first person to be on the show who does not drink coffee. It's, oh, okay. It is, okay. okay. It is, it's then. not a requirement. So. <laughs> okay, I feel bad. Yeah, because I'm like, yeah, I just... Yeah. The closest you might get at me before I turned vegan was eating a coffee crisp chocolate bar. <laughs> but <laughs> that was it. Those are delicious. I kind of miss those. Not gonna lie. Take a vegan version. Yeah. Oh. Right. <sighs> okay. So drink of choice. Uh, well, being that I do a lot of distance running and enjoy that, um, protein shakes are probably my favorite drink. <laughs> So you'd be like rocking the protein shake. <laughs> yeah. Um, much better than wine. You know, yeah, maybe enjoy wine a little bit more, but um, yeah. Yeah, I'll go protein drink. So I would choose a strawberry banana vegan protein oh, yum. with chai seeds and flax and uh, a little bit of almond milk. I feel healthier just listening to you say that. You would drink it. That's amazing. Probably like after one of your long runs. Yes. Sitting. Yeah, your exactly. <laughs> Would you drink it with anyone or do you like like to have your own your own space? Uh, you know, I think if I could drink it with anyone, and I, I was thinking about this because I, you know, graciously got some of these questions yeah. from you in advance, like most people uh offer on podcasts, but I was thinking, God, who would I pick? Like you know, because there's so many incredible people in the world that have mm -hmm. made such powerful influence. But I think the person that I would pick to drink that with would be the first person that walks past me. And I say that because I 
Yeah, well, and I think that that's just because um, I think every person has something to offer the world that nobody else does. Mm -hmm. Everybody has some type of powerful or quirky or interesting history or past um, that can teach others something. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that the things that I've learned from other people that have impacted me the most have come from lay persons. They haven't come from books I've read and, you know, scholars or, you know, really good public speakers. They've come from the everyday people that I've just come across in my life that have mm -hmm. said or done something very uh, minute in the moment, yeah. but have really planted a seed in some kind of way mm -hmm. like we talked about endlessly here. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Oh, I 100% agree. I think like, usually I, I hate the the kind of culture that we've created where we won't listen to anyone until they've written a book and then once yeah. they've written a book we'll listen to anything they say yeah. and I'm like okay but <laughs> what is that you know and yeah like you said everybody has something to offer and so I think we miss a lot of things when we won't listen to anyone you know or won't take into consideration what somebody says when they're not famous or whatever it's exactly. anyway I think that's beautiful that's like that's the best answer ever I did not expect that <laughs> oh thank you <laughs> I, love it. I think a protein shake with just the first person that walks past me so I can hear something cool about them or their experiences yeah. and uh and the third part was where right where yeah I think you know even though I don't get as much time as I would like for it, I love reading and I really love writing. If I could, I would make writing my full-time career. Um, mm. And so I, being that I'm a student, I spend a lot of time in libraries <laughs> and I really like libraries. I like the smell of books. I like the quiet, mm -hmm. calm, peaceful energy. I like the intellectualism, mm -hmm. the vibe of that, of people bettering themselves and stuff. So I think I would pick a really, really beautiful library. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the Abbey Library of St. Gall in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the George Peabody Library in Maryland in the States. In I love that you just know where all the bougie libraries are. <laughs> I'm like, in my head, I'm going, I need to Google that. They're so beautiful. Some of the architecture in, in some libraries, like, I mean, here in Edmonton, like, not going to lie, our libraries are, they're very modern and, like, new and not updated. the same, Yeah. No, it's not the same as like the libraries that have like the ladders where you got to push it over and like climb up to get your book, you know, 10 shelves high and yeah. have that old wood smell and, and then like old historic books that are there. That the, are the new libraries are like the Kindle of libraries. And yeah. like, I want to hold the actual book in my head. I hate reading off of a phone or a screen. Yeah. I hate it. I like won't Me do too. it. And I'm like, it's so that, yeah, it's the, they're like the Kindle. And I'm like, okay, but like, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true so true so yeah a historic library with my favorite protein shake with just talking to the person and walks past me yeah i love that well thank you so so much andrew this has been so fun and i'm sure we'll have you back again sometime i can't wait to watch and read everything that you've been busy creating this is oh fun. thank you so yeah thanks for having me on and you know thanks for being a person who cares about this issue and you know, just giving space to people to talk about it too, because I think at the end of the day, that's really what it comes down to is just more conversation, more conversation, mm -hmm. just talking about it more and more and more. And that's really going to lead us closer to a better understanding and mm -hmm. a better collectivist response and, and just better for women in general. So I thank you for your work, you know, and 
happy to be a part of your podcast. Look forward to listening to more episodes. And Awesome. Thanks, Andrea. <laughs> Thank you. So many fantastic thoughts and resources there. We will link as many of them as we can in the show notes. So make sure that you check those out. And if you're not already, sign up for our monthly emails by contacting us at wildgingercoffee at gmail.com. So you get notified as soon as the docuseries and book are released. Um, We really want you to be able to get your hands on those. As always, we love to hear from you. Reach out if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, and we would love to connect with you. We will see you in July with another phenomenal survivor story.